Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. I was reading an article this morning, and I was reminded of something I saw on Twitter last year at some point. I don't remember who said this, but someone pointed out that up until 100 years ago, no one had ever listened to music alone. <laughs> In other words, the only way you listened to music was when someone was performing. Now, this doesn't really count if you're playing it yourself, because playing isn't listening. It's not thinking about the music in the same way. But until recorded music came along, no one listened to music alone. You always had to be with someone. This is one of my favorite thought experiments. What must it have been like to be a music fan 100, 150 years ago, when the only time you ever heard music was when someone was playing it? There was no recording of it. So what kind of, what kind of, ramifications did that have in your life as a music fan you could collect sheet music you could attempt to you know play it yourself you could play you could buy you know scores to classical music pieces and 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 popular songs and play it at home but if you didn't know how to play music and the only way to list to to know anything about music was to hear it um or to see it written down i mean another thought experiment is what about the music from a thousand years ago when they weren't writing it down? What did what did you do then? You had to memorize songs and things like that. So the whole idea of this uh, this idea of experiencing music is very interesting. So I'm I'm really glad that you pointed this out. And uh, there's some very interesting ideas in this article. So yes, so we're we're looking at an article. I'll link in the show notes. It's in the London Review of Books from 1995. It's called Hubbub by Nicholas Spice, and it's an essay about two books. Repeated Takes, A Short History of Recording and Its Effects on Music by Michael Shannon, and Elevator Music, A Surreal History of Muzak, Easy Listening, and Other Mood Song by Joseph Lanza. Now, we did an episode about Muzak some time ago. I'll link to it in the show notes. If you don't know the London Review of Books, you'll often get an essay like this that isn't really reviews of the books. It's a discussion of the topics mentioning the books a little bit. It's someone kind of riffing on the ideas of the books. I like that idea, actually. It's uh, because that's just, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> we're going to riff on the ideas in the article. So, what a great idea! Thank you, gentlemen. I haven't read the whole article. You actually highlighted some sections for me to read, but it, it looks like it might be worthwhile. It's a it's very thick, you know. It's, it's a, a dense it, article. Yes. It's it's an intellectual article, but but it has some interesting things. So, I want to start with a statement. There is a view that the act of recording music does not just disturb its relationship to silence, but damages it fundamentally by freeing it from its dependencies on the contingencies of a particular time and place and by making it permanent. And we've discussed this when we've talked about live albums. It freezes the moment, right? It takes music that was meant to be ephemeral, at least music had been thought of as ephemeral until 100 years ago, and it freezes it, giving it I want to say giving it value. I just saw there's a new Jimi Hendrix concert at the Los Angeles Bowl, Hollywood Bowl, whatever, that's being released. And I was thinking about these early live albums, and I'll link to our recent episode on live albums. 
where a band would release a live album, but you only heard that one live album because there were no other ways of hearing live recordings, unlike, say, The Grateful Dead, where, you know, even back in the 70s, people were starting to trade tapes. So it was, with someone like Jimi Hendrix, even though he died young, he did hundreds of concerts, but we only have one or two or three that were recorded, and maybe there's only a couple Maybe there's more recorded, but only a couple that were good. The sound wasn't good. The band wasn't good. He took too many drugs or whatever. And so it kind of crystallizes your opinion of a musician. If you've got one amazing live concert by a musician, yet all the rest of them were crap, you don't know about the rest of them. That's interesting because I think, um, you know, Woodstock introduced a lot of people to not only Jimi Hendrix, but a lot of, of people. And a lot of people... W- I'm sure walked away after listening or seeing Woodstock to think, well, that's what they do. That's that's the thing that they do. I mean, the Who do not sound live the way they sound in the studio. Jimi Hendrix does not sound in the studio the way he does live. While his version of the Star Spangled Banner is very interesting and unique, um, if he ever did it again, it would be completely different, assuredly. And, you know, even even as a blues player, as as his performances would be different by definition because his instrumentals would be different. Uh, he, he's not the same. He's not the sort of guy that would play the same kind of solo. Wait, he would play the same kind of solo, but it wouldn't. But not necess- the same notes. Right. Not the same notes, not the same feel, not the same whatever. So it, that's a very interesting thing, how it how it does freeze a performance, which is good in classical music. But it's not so great with pop music. The Actually, th- this made me think of Taylor Swift. Uh, Taylor Swift is going to be my example of pop music. Forever. Forever, yeah. She recorded some songs, and those are pop songs, and people like them. They want to hear the same song, recorded song, over and over and over again. Then, through some management nonsense, she decides to record them again. And they are different or different enough that they are uh, uh, amusing, they are enticing to her fans, whatever. I don't know how people think about the, the different recordings. I've never really read about how people feel about it. But she has two sets of recordings now of some of these songs. And yet, which neither one of them is definitive now. <laughs> you know, like there's no definitive recording of the Brandenburg Concertos. You could say what my favorite version of the Brandenburg Concertos are, but there's no definitive version now. But before she recorded the second version, there was a definitive version. And it's very, pop music is a very strange animal when you compare it to that sort of classical music recording effect. Well, the story with Taylor Swift is that she, uh, this is kind of interesting because her parents were both, I think her father runs a head fund, her mother's an investment banker, so really business savvy, yet they signed her on for a really bad contract where she gave away the rights to her masters, right? So if she writes songs, and she doesn't write all her songs or she doesn't write them all by herself, if she writes songs, she has the publishing rights. Unless she sells them, they belong to her. When she performs a song, she can have the performance rights unless she sells them or gives them away in a contract, which is what she did. But no one can prevent her from re-recording those songs with her retaining the performance rights, and that's what she did, to get her fans to not buy the originals and to buy the re-recorded, what she's calling Taylor's version, because she'll get more money out of them. So it's purely financial. It's nothing to do with 
artistic integrity. It's they made a bad decision, which is surprising because they are an incredibly savvy family, and they figured out. Well, who knew? Who knew? Who knew? Right. right? All these bands that Bob Dylan signed away as publishing famously early on, and then he broke up with whatever his manager was, and managed to get the rights back. A lot of lawsuits occur when bands who are too stoned to know what's in the contract and to think about it sign or away. Or too their... excited, too excited and preoccupied with just sure. getting a contract. Yeah, Sure, sure. But in Taylor Swift's case, it wasn't the publishing, it was the performance. And signing away your master's, the performance rights means you have literally no control over them, which means you can't say, I don't want this song to be used in a commercial for Dove Soap or for cat food, for example. So you mentioned classical music, and I want to go on a little bit further in the article. The idea that recording destroys music's aura derives in part, at least from a misconception of the nature and role of spontaneity in music. Shannon speaks of the way a record, quote, robs the performance of its sense of spontaneity. And he quotes Jacques Attali, a French person, in a book called Noise, that recording removes from a performance the unforeseen and the risks. The new aesthetic of performance, Attali continues, excludes error, hesitation. But error, hesitation, and other unwished-for spontaneities have never been part of the felicities of live performance. Classical musicians devote themselves to trying to thwart the uncertainties and hazards of playing live. This is because they have something very specific they wish to get across. Their understanding of how the music should go, the interpretation they have worked on for months, perhaps years, prior to the performance. And if you look at classical performance as theater, I go see Shakespeare's plays in my local theater, and they generally have several months of rehearsal before they get on. I've seen a couple of these plays five or six times during a run. And there is literally no difference in the way they perform. Sure, there's a little bit of the voices are slightly different, the rhythm's different. But I'll give an example. They did a Macbeth, I was going to say a few years ago, I think it's 2016, it's a long time ago, with Christopher Eccleton. He played Doctor Who at some point. And they had a very interesting approach. At the moment that Macbeth kills, is it Macduff? I don't even remember who he kills. <laughs> some, some, some Scottish guy. Right. At the moment in the Scottish play, when the Scottish guy kills the Scottish guy, there's this big clock on the back of the stage, like like a scoreboard clock, right? That that rolls up to two hours and then starts ticking down the seconds. So that means that from that point, including through the intermission to the end, they have to get to where they're going to go in exactly two hours. I like that. It's really clever because as it's going on, you glancing at the clock, you're thinking, oh, this is how much longer it's going to go, but will they make it? If you've seen the play, you kind of know what's in it. And Macbeth is not a long play. It's one of the shorter Shakespeare plays. And you can imagine that they have timed this so perfectly that every line they speak, that every character coming on stage, going off stage is timed so perfectly that they've got us they've probably got time cards backstage so they know if they need to drag out a little bit. But it, perfect. The three times I saw it was perfect. The two hours ended just at the right time. That's kind of funny because it adds a, another level of suspense and and, ang and anxiety uh, to a play that is already jam-packed full of it. I always thought that was a clever thing to do, but you're right. It has to be, every performance will be virtually identical because of the time and the pacing. Uh, it will never change. Uh, that's very interesting. You know, um, again, the idea of classical musicians attempting to mount a performance 
that is, uh, gee, I don't know if they all want to make it the def- as I said earlier, the definitive version. I wonder if they are aware that it is really only one interpretation of it, or are are people really adamant about no, this is the one? <laughs> I mean, I just don't understand how there can be. Uh, especially with classical music, especially when you write music down and it has to be interpreted some way or another. When you look at the little dots on the piece of paper, you know, you've got 50 to 100 people trying to figure out how to make it go. Um, How can it be the same each time? It can't be. So it's an interesting dynamic going on in that direction. I think people who listen to classical music seriously appreciate the differences in performance and understand that the performances will be the same, that Conductor A and Orchestra B doing Symphony C by Composer D will always sound the same this season when they're on tour. Sure. Maybe the next time the conductor might change a few things. Maybe with a different orchestra, smaller orchestra, he'll give different weight to certain instruments. How about when they were making the uh, records and a piece of music had to fit on a side or uh, uh, two sides – of, of, a, of a recording, of, a, of an LP, of a 78 or whatever, um, that may also change the uh, uh, several dynamics, you know, how long the piece is, how short the piece is, how quick, how slow, how fast. So uh, there, there are all kinds of, I guess, uh, restrictions uh, that you have to impose on yourself when you're playing these things. You know, you can't make mistakes. That's one concession you have to make. You can't play it wrong. You can't, as he said... Uh, what was one of the felicities? Uh, delay and things like that. You can't change the timing too much. You can't. You can't play the Brandenburg Concerto slower than they're supposed to be. I mean, you can't be lugubrious with them. I have a fascination with people who have a fascination with covers, cover songs in pop music and in in rock music. They are absolutely delighted and tickled that some other group of musicians has played a song by somebody else, and I think a lot of non-musicians don't understand that every song that a musician plays that he didn't write is a cover. It's like, I mean, in the sense that in the sense that you're playing someone else's music, and it's not difficult, it's not, there's no magic to it. Music is always being reinterpreted like that, but as you say, you're right. They learn it one way, and they do it that way, like the Macbeth. It has to be done that way. Next season could be the uh, same piece of music and they could bring in a different conductor who has different ideas about how things should be played, how loud a section should be, how quiet, whatever. So that's, that's an interesting thing. But the, the idea that you know different classical music pieces can be heard in different ways, that would annoy if, if Pearl Jam put out the same record every year but just different recordings of the same songs, it would be boring very quickly. Yet a band like that can do an unplugged album. Yep, sure. But they can't do two unplugged albums. No, (laughs) right, exactly. (laughs) They can't do Pearl Jam's version of the unplugged album if they signed away the performance rights or something. Right, right, right. So... Quoting again from this article, the hugely increased participation of music in the processes of ordinary life and the sometimes bizarre conjunctions it can lead to, in parenthesis, listening to gibbons while you have your teeth drilled, has undoubtedly altered the sorts of things music may seem to say to us. And I find it interesting to think how music 
how music has a role in so many areas. Continuing, most films would be helpless without music. Jaws without the rhythmic thud of approaching doom. Film, TV, and even radio now expect us to feel uncomfortable with action or image unaccompanied by music. It's as though we are not to be trusted to react properly without the promptings and guidance of a musical score. Didn't I say that in, the, in an episode recently we were talking about? And, and I said that I was imagining that a particular thing without music would have been totally different, a particular right. film. I had been watching some old film and there was music all throughout. Yes. I don't like that they use music to just get the story told. In Jaws, I disagree that it's enhancing the story in, in the particular Jaws case. I mean, that music is terrifying. It's like in Psycho. You know, that music yes, yes. makes the scene terrifying. But also that music is repeated, right? Every time the shark is coming. Sure, sure. So once you hear it, you get this sort of pre-terrified. Yeah, you get the dread. You, you accept it. And, and the dread is part of the experience of watching the movie. However, when I'm watching a show on... Uh, when I'm watching you know, some humdrum TV movie, and they just put canned music by Devol in there. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's just there to create a lame atmosphere. I kind of think that in a lot of movies, it's there to hide things, to hide what the visuals can't show you, to hide emptiness in the dialogue or in the pacing or in the timing, that sort of thing, that it's, that it's a, I don't want to say it's a gimmick because music is really valuable, but that sometimes it's used to fill in where the director doesn't have anything to say. Yeah, I think to a certain degree there's that. And I think, as I think we mentioned when we were talking about this last, whenever that was, there could be, uh, you know, some incompetence among the actors Whatever they want conveyed is not being conveyed. We need to enhance it. We need to amplify it with using the music. Tear at your heartstrings, as it were, you know, that sort of thing. Or add tension or set a mood. Or yeah. I keep telling you, you've got to watch Knives Out to see the, the song that they play behind the closing credits. Because I will. <laughs> it's kind of weird that they chose that particular song. It's something you know very well. Near the end of the article, he says, provided we are in control, we seem to like to arrange a soundtrack for our lives, perhaps because music makes us feel as though we belong to a more exciting story than the one we mostly seem to take part in. That's, um, that's kind of sad, <laughs> but it is, it, but, but it's true because I know that if I didn't have music to listen to, I would feel, I would feel robbed of something. I, I would feel like something's missing. I got to have it. But I wouldn't say my life is humdrum without it. On the other hand, my life is 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 wonderful because I have music in it and because I enjoy it so much and I love talking about it and I love listening to it and I love finding out more and more and more about it because always more to learn. But uh yeah, it's true. The perhaps the pedestrian listener feels more that way that thank goodness there's music because i don't know what i would do because every day i got on the bus and i go to work and i and it just kind of like fills the routine with a little more variance and a little more excitement and a little more you know rocking and you know you can dance in your chair while you're doing your reports for work not on the not on the bus but that's as we often say music is wallpaper yeah the majority of people who do want to hide the silence who don't want to face the existential dread of silence in their world. 
Wow, that's deep, man. I don't know if anybody feels existential dread from silence, but I suppose there are those people that, I suppose. When when you're in a world with so many things going on as we are, and admit it, it's different than when we were teenagers, sure. right? There's so much stuff going on. Well, we see it. We get, we're exposed to a lot more than we were. 40 years ago, social media, the web, and all that stuff. But there's still more. There's more music. There's more TV. There's more cinema. There's more people. There's more politics. There's more argument. There's more everything. And sometimes you just have to block that out, and music can be a way to do that. It, it's funny because I came to this article because I was writing an article for a blog about how daydreaming can help creative writers. That daydreaming is a wonderful way to just let your mind go and discover new ideas. And there was a quote which I got from the London Review of Books by Jenny Diskey. Traveling alone on a train was no longer a space to read or daydream, but a boredom hole to be filled with phone conversations. Now, this is talking about when you had a phone and you talked on the phone rather than a smartphone. And if she was still alive, she would point out how now it's just swiping and, and scrolling and stuff like that. But it's interesting that I remember being bored when I was young. Yeah. I remember in the summer, you go out, what are you going to do? There's nothing to do. Your friends aren't around. You got to keep yourself busy. Your parents won't let you keep watching TV all day. And you got bored and you figured out things, but you also daydreamed a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I used to take the train uh, when I first started working in radio. I, I went between Providence and Westerly every day, which is about an hour. And I would have to pack all kinds of things to take with me on the train in order to keep from being bored, you know, books, music, all this stuff, all, I mean, a, a bag full of things just to stay entertained while I was being transported from one place to another. And I'm sure that's the way people feel with their phones now uh, when they're commuting. I used to read a lot. Uh, there was several years that I lived in Queens and worked in Manhattan. So pretty much 45, 50, 55 minutes each way. I read Proust on the subway in, in New York. That's what they used to do. You used to see people on the bus and the train or whatever reading like incredible tomes. And now it's like, you don't know what they're reading. They're looking at Pornhub for all you know on the train. You don't know when they're looking at their little their little things. So I guess it's all the same. But people, But people do need to daydream. People do need to unplug, lie down on the floor, stare at the ceiling for a little while and you know, you can't just do it before you go to bed. You can't just do it while you're sitting around waiting for a bus. You have to daydreaming is a is a is a sport, is <laughs> an activity. It, it's a skill to relearn for a lot of people. And uh, again, if you're in any sort of creative activity, uh, you know it, it's well known in history that a lot of people, scientists and authors, would go for walks, and that would spur their creativity because when you're walking, you're daydreaming. You're not you're not thinking left, right, left, right, tree, stone. Squirrel, you're daydreaming, and you don't have to walk to daydream, but it's really helpful. Can I mention one thing? This is completely not to do what we're doing, uh, we're talking about, but I wanted to mention this at some point. And since we mentioned Taylor Swift, she's got a concert movie coming out. And like that, as far as I'm concerned, that's one step closer to my dream of being able to watch concerts. Now, it's this is not a, it's not unusual to do a concert film, is it? I mean, I don't know. Lots of bands have done them. Well, there were tons of them starting in the 70s, right? We used to go to these midnight screenings of concert films. It's the only way sometimes you would be able to see an act. You would, I, yeah. I saw, I never saw Santana live, but I don't know how many movies I saw them in. But I don't think there have been a lot of concert films in movie theaters in 
I want to say decades. I, I, I think you're right. Um, most of them are direct to digital or whatever. They're on, you know, you can rent them. DVD. But those this, little discs? This, yeah. Um, but I couldn't believe it when this was announced recently. People, social media went, ah, I got to get tickets. I got to have tickets. And it's like, you know, Taylor, let's see how this works. And then maybe you'll think about doing, um, maybe broadcasting a live concert to cinemas the way they do in, I know they do it in Europe. They don't do it here, or they do it rarely. Or it's considered pay-per-view, and it's... it's it ha- I always think when I hear pay-per-view, I think of boxing. <laughs> but if you made it something like a Taylor Swift concert, and not many people could do it, uh, she could pull it off. She could definitely fill theaters. But this is a great way of repurposing theaters because no one's going to movies anymore. But I would go, and for the sound system alone, just to hear a good version of a Taylor Swift concert, I would go. I might end up going to see this because I'm kind of curious about it. So I, I, I hope it's something that other people take into consideration. It can't be that expensive to make a film, concert film. And again, it's the first step in getting... You, you'd be surprised. We had John Wyver on the show talking about how he makes the films at the Royal Shakespeare Company. There's six or eight cameras. There's a crew of 20, 25 people. There's big trucks. It's a lot. And that's a tiny theater. Imagine you're in a stadium with Taylor Swift or or concerts that are filmed like Rolling Stone concerts are filmed for release on DVD. It's a big deal. And in particular, because of the unions in the US, it costs like twice as much, I believe. That's why it took so long for Hamilton to be filmed on Broadway to then be released on, I believe it was Disney+. Plus. So it's not something that's easy to do, but at, at a Taylor Swift level, you could do it. But how many times are you going to do it? Right. If the concert's the same every time, then people aren't necessarily going to want to see it three times. You'd have to do one per tour, which maybe is what she's planning to do now. She doesn't want to take the chance of doing it live because there is a risk. One of the big risks, for example, when they do the Royal Shakespeare Company, they do a a camera rehearsal a couple of days before, then they do the broadcast. Now, when they start the broadcast, they start playing the camera rehearsal in case anything happens, and they need to switch to that on the feed because, I don't know, someone fell off the stage or something. So you've got to have your backup when you do something like that live. Yeah, I I can see that. And the other the other problem, I thought, is that it might devolve into just being a long music video. I mean... You know, I don't want to see, like, for instance, what's the one, the, the Led Zeppelin movie, which the has... remains in, the same. Yeah, it has interstitial cuts of bizarre things of them doing crazy things, not on stage. And while that's interesting, and that's an interesting concept for a concert film, I would not want to go see Taylor Swift just doing a string of music videos. Although, that could be done too. So I would be very interested to see this adopted as a... As a, as a media thing. Next tracks? Go for it. I have a pick which is probably unexpected. It is the soundtrack to the game Starfield, which was released two weeks ago for Xbox. <laughs> you you just reacted to that. Whoa, wasn't didn't see that coming. And since we were talking about music being used as like background and wallpaper, what better place for that to happen than with video games? Now, I got an Xbox in January. I think I mentioned this before. First time I ever had a game console. Doug says, I'm a gamer. So I had always wondered why people would go to a concert of an orchestra playing music from a video game. And this is actually quite popular. And some of them will get dressed up. It'll be a cosplay thing. And they'll hear the 
you know, the themes of when they killed the boss or whatever, and the theme songs for the things. And it made me really think about this. So I'm going to link to Apple Music, which has the entire soundtrack for this game, five and a half hours of music, which is an extraordinary amount of music. It made me think of one thing that at least for this game, people are listening to a lot of orchestral music. I don't want to say classical music, but it's mostly orchestral. He does a combination of orchestral and synthesized music, but it's mostly orchestral. And a lot of people, millions of people, are listening to classical-ish inspired music. Now, there was an article in The Guardian about this music last week. I'll link to it in the show notes. And the game reviewer said that from the first notes of the music, it sounds nostalgic. And my reaction to that is, it's derivative. It sounds like the kind of music you get in every science fiction movie. It has that, you know how anything about American politics, you have the the brass and the, the snare drum. Well, science fiction movies, he starts out with a a theme on French horns. And that's like the total science fiction movie thing that you can imagine. So what he's done is he captured the standard tone of science fiction movies, and he's put it into this soundtrack. And it doesn't all work. Some of it's really good. The themes that you hear during the loading screens, which drag on and on and on and on, are kind of interesting. And there's certain themes where you get a kind of a Jaws-like when you're getting attacked by spitting cockroaches. But as as music to listen to as music, it's kind of interesting. I wonder what people would think if they listened to this without knowing anything about the game, if it would attract them in some way. So if you do listen to this, Starfield, the soundtrack recording, drop us a comment and let us know what you think. Doug, what have you got? I am going to be listening to an album by a band called The Adverts. Now, I've heard of The Adverts. They were a British punk era band that I'd heard of at the time, but I never heard them. I don't, I don't know how many records they shipped to the United States, but uh, never heard them on college radio, never, never experienced them in any way, shape, or form. But uh, it so happens that the bass player had a birthday recently, and the British music press was saying, hey, remember Laurie from the adverts? So I said, oh, the adverts, I've heard of them. And then shortly after that, I ran into a playlist on my Apple Music thing, and there was an advert song in the playlist, so I listened to it. It was a great song called We Who Wait. Terrific song. They're, they're a poppy, choppy, rocky sort of punk band. Not strictly a violent-sounding punk band, just one of those rocky, choppy bands. And the song We Who Wait is a song complaining about having to wait for things like the cigarette machine and stuff like that. And I thought, well, that's an interesting, that's an interesting perspective. So I grabbed the record. It's called The Adverts. Crossing the Red Sea, and that's the album I'm going to be listening to. Now, I've never heard them a lot. I've heard this song, We Who Wait, a couple of times now. But the great thing about stumbling on a band like the Adverts for me is that it's it's a whole new vein of music that I haven't heard. And it, so far, looks to be like a pretty good-sounding band to be checking out. So I'm kind of excited about finding this record. And a belated happy birthday to Laurie. The Adverts, Crossing the Red Sea, is my next track. This was episode number 265 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. All you got to do is visit thenexttrack.com. 
Don't forget to support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining. We really like it that way. And your support is what keeps us going. Thank you very much. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thank you once again. We'll talk to you next time.